Hello, and welcome to this thing, which is somewhere between a possible podcast and a voice memo made from my supervisors. Um, if you've stumbled across this without much context, then my name is Lucy and I'm doing a PhD that's all about whether music has a potential positive impact on social integration. So specifically, I'm going to be looking at songwriting projects and community choirs and whether these types of initiatives can play a part in helping people feel more at home in their communities. Um, people coming out of prison and people seeking asylum or who maybe have refugee status. And this is about a two-way integration process, so it's not just about the people that are seeking to belong in a community, but whether they're welcomed and accepted by the people around them. My experience is that music can be powerful in this context, but I want to investigate this both by diving into reading and thinking on this subject, but also by throwing myself into some collaborative music making with people um, who are facing these different forms of marginalisation. And along the way, I'll also be writing songs my, by myself um, to reflect on what I've been learning. So today, uh, I'll be sharing a bit of chatter about what I've been thinking about and reading about recently, and uh, that'll be followed by a song written in response. So one of the threads that I'm following at the moment um, is about language and translation. Imagining songwriting as a kind of intercultural form of communication that bridges the gap between one person's experience and another person's perception. It can be helpful to look at this through the lens of translation. So there's this Italian saying that is traduttore traditore, which means um, that tr to translate is to betray. Uh, we talk about things being lost in translation. We talk about the challenges of the untranslatable. Um, there's lots of negative stuff around the idea of translation and um, that it doesn't quite hit the spot. Um, or meet the mark of the original. I met up with a group of literary translators and I asked for their experiences of untranslatable concepts. So I learned about uh, tsundoku, which is the Japanese word for the act of leaving a book unread after buying it, typically piling it up together with lots of other unread books, which sounds familiar. Uh, I also learned about the Estonian phrase, sorry about my pronunciation, something along the lines of varske ohu murgutus, uh, which uh, translates as fresh air poisoning. We also talked about the Swedish word lagom and the Portuguese saudade, um, which are both frequently described as untranslatable. And someone wryly commented that these uh, are words that people always say are untranslatable and then promptly and succinctly explain exactly what they mean. So at this meeting, someone from the Goethe Institute was there and she kind of rebuked me for going down this well-trodden path of untranslatable concepts. Um, it's such a cliche for things to be lost in translation, she said. Why not think about whether the opposite is true? And she's right, translation is rarely neutral, but that doesn't have to be a negative. There's a potential for a nuance, a shading, seeing a phrase or a concept in a different light or from a different angle. So this set me off on another path, and one discovery that I made was about Homer's Odyssey. Now, there have been over 60 translations of this classic, all of them by men. Until this year, when one Emily Wilson became the work's first female translator into English. Um, so this has been written about in a number of different uh, publications, but the Times Literary Supplement describes the episode um, where Telemachus visits Helen and Menelaus in Sparta, where Helen refers to herself in the original as kunopis, which literally means dog-faced, although what that adjective is meant to convey is not very clear in the original. 
uh, it's been translated uh, through the years in various ways. Um, uh, some including bitch and shameless bitch that I am. Uh, using also words and phrases like my impudency, my most shameless self or shameless whore that I am. Uh, so along comes Emily Wilson, who um, translates it like this. They, the Greeks, made my face the cause that hounded them. They made my face the cause that hounded them. So hounded keeps the dog element from the original, but it completely changes the sexual politics, which is a really fascinating way um, to totally transform the meaning of this. An editorial in The Guardian last week highlighted this and the power of it, describing Wilson's translation as a version that scrapes away the barnacle layers of centuries of masculine readings of the poem. So I'm starting to understand what the person from the Goethe Institute was talking about. Let's not concentrate on what can be lost in translation, but what can be mended, healed, set right or made equal. And in translating people's stories and experiences into melodies and metaphors, as I hope that I'll be doing in this PhD, maybe there is potential to heal some hurts and redress some inequalities along the way. So then I stumbled upon a paper by one of my supervisors, Alison Phipps, on the subject of linguistic incompetence. Alison uses the lens of the philosophy of Judith Butler to explore the narrative we use to describe ourselves, how we perform our identities, or as Butler puts it, um, how we give an account of ourselves. The paper is in the context of researching multilingually, where linguistic competence would be thought to be a prerequisite. However, Alison's reflec reflections on her own experience and language story um, begin to unpack and ultimately to unravel this idea of linguistic competence. She reflects on the richness of what we become through not knowing, through not being able to speak the language. She talks about shifting the discourse from competence to capability, I suppose from the what we already know angle to the what we have the potential to discover and become angle. She talks about discovering the capability to be a beginner again, the capability for relationships, for hospitality and for attentiveness. There's a lot to reflect on here that can inform the process of collaborative songwriting. For example, let's not assume that we speak each other's languages or that what you mean by a particular word is the same as what I mean. Let's start with attentiveness, with listening, and let's dig into the rich earth of what is beyond the written or spoken word to find some common ground. Images, metaphors, chords, emotions, facial expressions, counter melodies, moments of eye contact, clapped rhythms, childhood memories. The neurologist Oliver Sacks writes that music, uniquely among the arts, is both completely abstract and profoundly emotional. Music can pierce the heart directly. It needs no mediation. Ultimately, what Alison is describing in this paper is vulnerability. And Brene Brown, who has recently emerged as the guru of this subject, says that vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity and change. So this brings me to the process of doing this PhD. The conventional or established way of going about this is to spend most of the first year reading and learning and reading and learning until I know everything about my own tiny niche and I can start doing field research, safe in the knowledge that I am like a knight in a suit of armour, armed with all the knowledge and learning that I need. But armour can also restrict us and weigh us down. Famously, this was the case in the biblical story of David and Goliath. 
So there's another option for PhD research, and that is the jump in at the deep end and figure it out as you go along approach, which is favoured in some forms of qualitative research, and particularly in arts practice-based research. This is about making a start before you know all the answers, or indeed any answers, or indeed the questions. Using arts practice as research, in my case songwriting, is going to be quite a scary and vulnerable thing to do. It needs to be an iterative and cyclical process where I ask questions, I make work on my own and in collaboration with others, and along the way maybe I learn to ask better questions. After a month I'm already seeing flaws in the research questions in my initial PhD proposal, so maybe that's a good thing. French philosopher uh, Roland Barthes said that literature is the question minus the answer, which I think is also true of many forms of music. And it's certainly a relief to focus, at least initially, on finding the question rather than finding the answer. So the concepts of integration and translation have in common that they are bridges from one place to another, from one experience to another. They are relationships that seek to connect across a gap, whether that is the width of a Venetian canal or of a disparity in understanding between differently situated people. These concepts cross in between spaces, and the next rabbit hole that I've jumped down is a bit of an exploration of these in-between spaces. I recently watched a short film called Lift, made by Mark Isaacs in 2001. It's an award-winning mini-documentary, deceptively simple, entirely filmed in the lift of a high-rise block of council flats. The filmmaker stands in the corner of the lift, sometimes in silence, sometimes asking people questions as they travel up and down. We see the same people coming and going, and as they build up a rapport with the filmmaker, he begins to ask increasingly probing questions. Have you ever been in love? What's your favourite childhood memory? There's a lot of silence, a lot of listening, and a growing sense of the intimacy of this temporary, transient space. Sometimes people come back to pick up where they left off and tell him more of the answer to his question a couple of days later. It calls to mind the concept of the temporary autonomous zone, an anarchist idea that describes the socio-political tactic of creating temporary spaces that elude formal structures of control. This book suggests that the best way to create a non-hierarchical system of social relationships is to concentrate on the present and on releasing your mind from the controlling mechanisms that have been imposed on it. It says that any attempt at permanence that goes beyond the moment deteriorates to a structured system that is always going to stifle creativity. It is this chance at creativity that is real empowerment. So we see all of this in the lift, the transience, the creativity, the shift towards equality, the unexpected openness and the vulnerability. And all of these things are things we have seen when running collaborative songwriting projects in prisons, another form of temporary autonomous zone. And the name of Vox Luminous, the charity where I'm based for part of my PhD, means voice from the threshold. The threshold being another obvious in-between space. Another example of an in-between space, a place of waiting and uncertainty, is the host society for a person who is seeking asylum. Neil Quinn, in a great paper describing a participatory action research project with asylum seekers and refugees experiencing discrimination, he talks about how uncertainty about how long an asylum seeker is going to have to wait before receiving the final decision on their claim and about the outcome of the decision means living a suspended life 
leading to serious consequences for individual mental well-being. This suspended life is problematic for so many reasons. There are challenges around housing and poverty and not being allowed to work, which often have negative impacts on mental health. And this is further compounded by racism and institutional and interpersonal prejudice and the double stigma of being an asylum seeker and being someone with poor mental health. Quinn talks about the profound implications of all of these factors for individuals as they sometimes internalise this rejection and discrimination, coupled with the lack of opportunities to work or contribute to their communities, and all of this leading to shame and self-stigma. Are there any positive aspects to be found in this in-between space? I don't know. Maybe for some. Is there value in helping people who are inhabiting this space to write songs about their experience, their hopes, their answers to life's difficult questions? Or indeed their questions? I hope so. I hope that we'll find out. And maybe a good place to start is to learn from Isaac's approach to filmmaking and Alison Phipps' approach to linguistic incompetence, developing the capability for attentiveness. I started to reflect more on these in-between spaces, places of flux and change and movement and exchange, and looking for metaphors that we could draw on to help conceptualise their potential. The first one that emerged was an anatomical one, the idea of interstitial fluid. So on average we have roughly 11 litres of this fluid in our bodies, in all the in-between spaces between all our cells. And this liquid is like a fueling station, it's full of nutrients for our cells and it's also a medium for intercellular communication and it's also useful for the removal of metabolic waste. So let's use these in-between spaces where we find ourselves to refuel, to communicate with one another and maybe to get rid of some of our unnecessary baggage. There are plenty of urban metaphors for in-between spaces. Um alleyways, thoroughfares, stations, squares, parks. As part of a course in qualitative methods, I learned about Perec and his book, An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris. So this is an experimental psychogeographical novel based on three days of sitting in the same square, making observations, describing all the small mundane movements of people and buses and weather and cars. And we were encouraged to go out and observe in this way, writing thick description of our context. So I did mine um, on the upper deck of a 61 bus on Mary Hill Road, heading for town. Itself like a blood cell pulsing through Glasgow's cardiovascular system, from the extremities to the heart and back again. On a recent residential with the core group from the Distant Voices Project, we were sent out into this ramshackle old country house where we were staying, in complete silence, with our hands stamped with the word, listen. As I listened to the house, it took on the character of a human body. Again, with us as the blood cells circulating noisily, irregularly, around its corridors and capillaries. Always in between. Carpenter and McLuhan describe another in-between space. They talk about auditory space, which they say has no point of favoured focus. It's a sphere without fixed boundaries. It's space made by the thing itself, not space containing the thing. It is not pictorial space, boxed in, but dynamic, always in flux, creating its own dimensions moment by moment. In a paper on popular music, Free Space and the Quest for Community, Ray Pratt suggests that one measure of any music is its presence, 
its ability to stop time or make us feel that we are living within moment, with no memory or anxiety about what has come before or what will come after. He goes on to talk about the potential of popular music to create community out of these fleeting moments of being present. He says that popular music can provide, if only momentarily, a means that concretizes a moment, turning it and the desires it contains into an artefact, a song, a performance, a recording, which can maintain at least a memory of the abandoned moment, and through consciously chosen repetitive rehearings, return again and again to recharge a part of society with renewed desire for what that moment represents. This gives me hope for the potential for some lasting change to emerge from these transient in-between spaces that we inhabit a lot of the time. So, in all this thinking around translation, linguistic incompetence, vulnerability and being present in the in-between fleeting spaces, this leads not to a linear kind of knowledge, but to something more rhizomatic, where we can discover unexpected connections and resonances where there's more space for complexity, for complicated networks stretching in multiple directions. This is helping me to make sense of the cyclical, iterative learning of the practices research approach, which is fundamentally rhizomatic and non-linear. Uh, so this has been a longer bit of chat than it was meant to be, but I kept finding more connections and I couldn't quite stop. So I'm sorry about that. In a moment you'll hear a song that began its life in the ramshackle country house that I mentioned earlier and has since grown arms and legs as I reflected on all the aforementioned things. And in the spirit of vulnerability I am sharing it in very rough demo format um, having recorded it in a programme that I'm just in the process of learning um, with some new equipment. Um, so that's a bit raw. Uh, and in the next episode of this rambling monologue of thinking and making and pondering, I'm hoping to reflect a bit on the ethics of sharing people's stories uh, and reflect a bit on the process of communal singing. But before that, I want to finish this chatty bit with a quote from Judith Butler, which is totally stolen from Alison Phipps paper, but I couldn't resist it. Here's what it says. To risk ourselves precisely at moments of unknowingness when what forms us diverges from what lies before us, when our willingness to become undone in relation to others constitutes our chance of becoming human. Thanks for listening. Irregular flow of footsteps in dusty old veins Creaking around, opening doors, rattling panes. You, I see the hidden layers of paper on the walls. Few ears strain for echoes in corridors. Landings and halls in the interstitial
Mostly come 